Thank you. Uh, thank you, Talita and Daniel, for the very kind invitation to give this presentation. Um, and I thank Antonios, my legal advisor, for reassuring me that it is okay for me to appear before you today. Um, I can express my solidarity for the strikers. Um, and as the holder of an old-fashioned defined benefit pension from the University of California, I really do have some solidarity with you. There were a few um, years, a few years ago, where we thought that might be a casualty of modern life. But so far, I have to say, so far so good um, on that score. Uh, so uh, my topic today is the, the the powers and the duties of arbitrators to deal with corruption. And it's part of the larger project that I'm working on or hope to be working on during my sabbatical year, um, which seems to be evaporating rather quickly, um, that addresses the rights, powers, and duties of arbitrators. So in the course of that project, I'm using several case studies to illustrate the challenging um, features of the topic of arbitrator duties and powers. Um, one of my case studies is corruption, which is primarily what I'm going to talk to you about today. Others, uh, at least at present, are uh, applicable law, including Urinovit uh, Curia, uh, uh, the development of precedent or quasi-precedent, uh, the power to sanction counsel and reparations. And some of these can overlap with each other. They, not, they don't uh, operate in silos. So this um, overall project was inspired by the frequent reference that we see to the duties of arbitrators. And here I would add the, the corollary concerns about the scope of the powers required to effectuate those duties. In other words, one concern when you're trying to identify the duties of arbitrators is how many powers do they need to effectuate those duties? What are the limits that one should impose on the arbitrators, um, uh, uh, both because we're concerned about their overreaching their authority um, and maybe because we have practical concerns about what they can and cannot do. But even though we often see references to the duties of arbitrators, a lot of time there is little to no explanation of the source of those duties. Let me give you an example from a now famous, well, okay, famous in a limited circle, um, quotation from an investment arbitration case having to do with so-called precedent or quasi-precedent in international arbitration. And the quote is, at the same time, it, the arbitral tribunal, is of the opinion that it must pay due consideration to earlier decisions of international tribunals. It believes that, subject to compelling contrary grounds, it has a duty to adopt solutions established in a series of consistent cases. It also believes that, subject to the specifics of a given treaty and of the circumstances of the actual case, it has a duty to seek to contribute to the harmonious development of investment law and thereby to meet the legitimate expectations of the community of the states and investors towards certainty of the rule of law. Well, so we've had, we see the word duty used twice in that paragraph. What might the sources of that duty be? I might remind you, we all know that Article 59 of the statute of the International Court of Justice says even decisions of the International Court of Justice are not um, precedential, they're binding only on the parties before them. So why is it or where is it in investment law that there is this duty? 
Um, I should emphasize here that I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that there is this duty, but sympathy or the tribunal's belief that there is a duty is not exactly a strong read on which to lean your, uh, uh, your position. Now, the tribunal here does talk about the legitimate expectations of the community of states and investors towards certainty of the rule of law. So we have some textual hook here about legitimate expectations, a loaded term for those who work in investment law. Um, but where did that come from? Did the arbitral contract give the tribunal that power? Are these more general expectations perhaps part of the nature of the arbitral process? Are they expectations found in international law itself? Although see my earlier caveat about Article 59 of the statute and other, even in the WTO, there is no uh, precedent uh, formally on the books, even though there's, uh, the appellate body has developed a precedential kind of system over the years. For those of you really, um, if there's anybody here really following the developments in investment law right now, the European uh, Commission has uh, proposed a the establishment of, a, of an international investment court. We actually see uh, bilateral versions of this in the CETA and in the EU-Vietnam agreement. One of the reasons for this is concern about lack of consistency on the part of uh, arbitrator, on the part of arbitral, arbitral tribunals. But in neither of those proposals, nor in the proposal the, e, e, the European Commission put forward with respect to the TTIP, the probably dead agreement uh, with the United States, is there any mention of precedent? In other words, they don't, they establish an appellate body to bring more consistency, but they actually don't say that the decisions of that body would be precedential and must be followed, which is a, an interesting uh, omission. Okay, so uh, maybe legitimate expectations suggest to us that these arbitral tribunal decisions should be consistent. Um, again, not sure that's a source of authority. Um, here we have also reference to expectations about certainty of the rule of law, which I find a little bit confusing. Certainly, um, certainty is one of the features of the rule of law, at least with respect to legislation. One should know what the law is. Um, in common, common law, <clears throat> development raises a few issues here, but um, um, we, we do have that principle. But does this mean, in this context, does this mean that they should be certain they were being subjected to the rule of law? Or does it mean that the rule of law itself requires predictability and certainty in judicial outcomes? Um, I would, I, I, you know, this might be placing too much emphasis on this one uh, uh, paragraph, uh, but predictability and consistency are something that you might expect, but uh, one might point out that the outcome of even most municipal cases is uncertain or we wouldn't even get to court in the first place. So we're not usually certain about the outcome of a case that gets to court, um, yet we do not view most countries as having judicial systems that don't act in accordance with the rule of law just because when we get to court we're not sure which side is going to win. Uh, we did not know how Miller would come out, but we do not think the UK legal system is inadequate because of that. Now, I should say here that this uh, not everyone endorses this duty. Other prominent arbitrators um, strenuously argue that the arbitrator's primary duty is to decide the case before them and that they have no duty or authority to develop international law. 
Indeed, decisions in other cases are not even a source of applicable law and therefore might not only be readily discarded, but might not even be lawfully applied. Um, the difference here is really in the primary source of arbitrator authority, something I will return to um, a little bit uh, later in my talk. Um, so I will, I will also return to this idea about the duty to render consistent decisions a bit later. But today I want, primarily want to talk to you about duties and powers when cases involve corruption. Uh, and here I suppose I should say I'm really at an early stage in my research, so I very much welcome your comments and questions uh, uh, when I'm done. Um, now, no one doubts that corruption is a global scourge. One in four say they have paid a bribe to access a public service in the last month. That is from Transparency International, 25% of people. Um, in 2009, um, Transparency International also estimated that between 20 to $40 billion per year are spent in corrupt payments. Um, turning to the intersection of corruption and arbitration, uh, Cecily Rose from Leiden University has identified more than 50 cases, investment, commercial, and involving the Iran-US Claims Tribunal that involve corruption. Now that number is a few years old. She was uh, working, uh, she, her article was published in, I think, 2015. Um, and at least a solid handful of cases have come out since then. Um, anecdotal, and in two cases, personal knowledge suggests that other cases have hints or concerns about corruption hovering in the background, but those are not brought forward because of the consequences. Sometimes embarrassment or complicity on the part of the state, uh, potential loss of the case or even prosecution or imprisonment for the uh, investor or the, the private contracting party. Um, however, in some cases, and in particular in investment treaty cases, we do see states raising corruption as a defense, uh, that the investment the investor sought to make was somehow tainted by corruption and the investor cannot thereby take advantage of the uh, of the um, uh, power of the tribunal to render an award against other um, iniquities of the state. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about, about that in a minute. Um, of course, here I should, I think, pause for a moment to define the type of corruption that I'm addressing uh, and to really define corruption itself. Um, as is often the case, there are different definitions, but one that is generally accepted is the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. Um, corruption can be classified as grand or petty um, or political, depending on the context in which it arises. Um, most arbitral cases have involved issues of corruption underlying the securing of or the renewal of a contract or an investment agreement. Um, and now it's certainly possible that corruption could infect the arbitral process itself, whether because somebody tries to bribe a tribunal member or um, because uh, uh, there's been a conspiracy by parties to use arbitration as a money laundering machine. Um, those cases are not directly what I am addressing today. Rather, my talk concerns the duties and powers of arbitrators when the case before them um, might involve corrupt behavior. Um, many scholarly commentators, um, uh, Cecily Rose, uh, Michael Huang and Kevin Kim, Louis Lamson, 
have documented the apparent reluctance of tribunals to deal with issues of corruption. Um, the reluctance can be demonstrated in a variety of ways, um, either by dismissal of the case um, uh, uh, on grounds I previously mentioned, um, if the investment has been secured by corrupt means, then there is no lawful investment, and the tribunal might either dismiss on jurisdictional grounds or decide that the case is inadmissible. Uh, the, um, sometimes the dismissals of, of the allegations of corruptions are based on facts, lack of proof, because it's very, it is, can be hard to prove corruption. It's often a, you know, he said, she said kind of scenario. Um, you know, I, oh, I met with the, you know, the, the business person says I met with the state representative. He said, if I gave him $50,000, we could have this. State representative says that never happened. Uh, um, uh, uh, hard, it's hard to prove uh, in, in, the, uh, in the aftermath. Um, more, maybe of even more concern um, is the more insidious dismissal of allegations by means of what uh, Louis Lamzen, who's written a, a very good treatise, it was his doctoral dissertation on um, investment, uh, corruption and investment treaty arbitration, he calls it jurisprudence confidentielle, uh, confidential jurisprudence, that arbitrators will covertly take account of corruption in the determination of the case, but without overtly addressing the fact that those corruption allegations influence the decision in any way. Um, so you might say, uh, if we th think of a typical scenario, the state says there is no investment because the investor procured that uh, investment agreement by corruption. The tribunal says there's insufficient evidence to prove that. We're not going to dis dismiss the case, but then when it comes to the case on the merits, the investor winds up losing, and maybe there's some suspicion that the investor lost, not exactly because of the merits of the case, but because there's some suggestion that corruption was underlying the whole setup and that he or should not win, or perhaps he gets something on the merits, but then the reparations are reduced. Again, a concern is that this is done in a covert way. Um, which uh, undermines the legitimacy of arbitration and I think undermines the fight against corruption. Um, now, in those cases, we do see rather a lot of uncertainty about the arbitrator's duties and their concomitant powers regarding those issues. And this uncertainty, I believe, is one of the reasons for arbitrators' reluctance to deal with these issues. So I have a, a partial laundry list of, of uncertainties about corruption to give you. Um, I've identified 10 because it seemed a nice round number. Um, I think I could have uh, divided them differently. I could probably add to these, but here are some of the ways. This is one of the reasons corruption is so interesting, but um, I'm also gonna suggest it's one of the reasons that you find arbitrators not wanting to grapple with it. Um, and I've tried to do this in, well, in something of a kind of almost chronological order. First question, if corruption allegations are raised during the case, must the case be dismissed? And is that dismissal based on jurisdictional or admissibility grounds? Um, and I'm gonna talk about the evolution of kind of thinking about this that we see in the non-case law. 
Um, second, uh, do differences in the type of corruption matter? Is grand corruption different from petty corruption? We know about um, uh, bribes paid to obtain or retain business. That's grand corruption. What if you simply bribed the customs officer to get your goods through faster? Is that, that's petty corruption. Um, in, I'm gonna say in the old days, <clears throat> When I was a young lawyer practicing law, there was a significant difference about that. Um, in the modern world, there's more of an assessment that both of these things are very bad for, for society as a whole. Um, third, does the tribunal have the duty or the, and, and the power to investigate corruption sua sponte? If so, what indicia trigger that duty? Fourth, what evidentiary implications are there when tribunals address corruption? Standards of proof, burdens of proof, uh, the, the drawing of adverse inferences. Um, fifth, is there a duty to report to corruption to public officials, assuming they do not know about it or are not somehow part of the case uh, at hand? Um, six, do arbitral tribunals have the power to cooperate with local courts and tribunals? Um, um, seventh, what effect, if any, do activities of local governments about corruption, including local courts, have on the decision-making of the tribunal? Um, in other words, if um, a state says there's been corruption, we are shocked and appalled that one of our agents engaged in corruption and we are now prosecuting him locally. Does that affect what the investment tribunal does? Should that affect what the investment tribunal does? Um, and on what bases? Um, eighth, 